Stand with me and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the living God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word of the living God. Now turn with me in the New Testament Scriptures to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. beginning with verse 11 and reading to verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 11, here again the Word of God. In Him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The word, again, of the living God, may he bless it. And finally, Mark chapter 10. For the context, beginning with verse 35, reading to verse 45, again the word of God. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, now we pray for your rich blessing upon the preaching of your word, both for those who hear and, Lord, a guard over the mouth of the one who speaks so that your name would be praised and glorified, so that Christ would be exalted in the hearts of your people, so that any who are in our midst who are apart from Christ, who are mired in unbelief, Lord, that they might see the glorious riches of Jesus Christ and the great salvation that he is for sinners who deserve only the wrath of God. Oh, Lord, guide us now in the preaching of your word. Rule us by your spirit, we pray, for the sake of the king who purchased us with his precious blood, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. With the Lord's Supper... It's pretty easy to connect the dots to the gospel because, of course, we have body and blood, bread and wine. The signs themselves show us an intimate picture of the very suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the last number of years, and indeed at various times throughout the history of the church, there has not been such a clear link with the sacrament of baptism. And one of the reasons for that, at least in more modern times and 
modern theologies of baptism is this, that baptism is viewed as a sign of what I've done. Now, ultimately, nobody would say uh, that the things signified in baptism are actually man's work, namely the salvation of the sinner himself. However, the emphasis that often is placed in baptism is upon the fact, or the perceived fact, that baptism is a sign that points to what I have done, namely, believing the gospel. And what we want to do this morning as we anticipate the baptism of two little ones who can't express their faith at all, who have no capacity to understand anything that's going to happen to them in 30 minutes or so time, and I know some of you are snickering at that suggestion, but they don't have a clue what's about to happen to them. And so by definition here in our own practice of covenant baptism, we would admit that this baptism is not signifying what has already been done or committed to or trusted in or believed on by the sinner. These are little sinners, but they are part of God's gracious covenant. And this morning what we want to do is see some of the richness of the biblical teaching about baptism. Now, some of you uh, may be wholly unpersuaded of what we call paedo-baptism. A better term for it would be covenant baptism, uh, but this is the understanding that it is not only believers who profess their faith, but the children of at least one believing, professing parent are to be baptized. This is the theology for generations in the Reformed Church. This is what we believe, teach, and practice here at Faith and As we'll see, it has a beautiful heritage in the Word of God. One thing that is also missed often when we consider the sacrament of baptism is the fact that it's a two-sided coin. You've heard it before, and maybe a more apt description would be it's a double-edged sword. Baptism contains what we might call, in technical speak, dual sanctions. Now, what in the world does that mean? Children, it's not hard. Baptism contains within it the potential for both blessing on the one hand and cursing on the other. Now, that's maybe a bold statement, and that might not even be a statement that you've ever even heard before. Does the Word of God teach it? This morning, what we're going to consider is this striking pattern in the Scriptures in which God judges the wicked through the waters of judgment while simultaneously, through those same judgment waters, saving, delivering his people by bringing them through the very waters of death. Now this is seen, and we'll see this very clearly in just a moment, especially in those incredible events in the Old Testament, namely the flood on the one hand and the exodus out of Egypt on the other These all preview the baptism of wrath which our Lord Jesus Christ would undergo undergo on the cross in order to rescue us, not from the waters of judgment, 
but from the ultimate fires of that great lake. Children, you know it from the book of Revelation as the lake of fire. That ultimate symbol and image of the floods of the wrath of God. Water giving way to fire. The scripture calls each of these salvation through judgment events a baptism. The flood is referred to as a baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. The exodus event where they crossed over on dry land in the midst of the judgment waters of the Red Sea is described as well as a baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Likewise, how do we connect this to Christ? Because everything has to connect to our Lord Jesus Christ and we're not grasping at straws here. The Bible's very clear that the death and resurrection of Jesus himself is described as a baptism. Mark chapter 10, verse 38, we just read it. And of course, it's corresponding old covenant sign of circumcision, which we see connected to baptism in Colossians 2 and verse 12. But as well, that final lake of fire judgment is described as a baptism as well in Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 12. All of this provides us with a rich, redemptive, historical background for the sacrament of baptism instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Matthew 28. Let's do two things this morning by the Spirit's help together. Uh, We want to look, first of all, at the Old Testament waters of salvation and judgment. And then children, those of you that are really sharp will already know the second point, the New Testament description of the waters of salvation and of judgment. So first of all, the Old Testament background here for the judgment waters that also simultaneously deliver the people of God. Think about the pattern of creation. Children, you you know this. This is the simplest thing that you learn as you begin to read Genesis chapter 1, the pattern of the original creation. There was earth and land. There were then birds, then beasts and creeping things, and then man, Genesis chapter 1. Now, think about the pattern of the flood. And this is very intentional. The order that we see in Genesis chapter 6 is an exact reversal of the order in which things were created. Why is that? Because the flood is going to be, theologically speaking, a de-creation, an undoing of the original creation order. And again, we know this because Peter calls it the world that then was. That's the old world before the flood. When the flood comes, now there's this new beginning. We've seen a number of these things as we've studied the Pentateuch together in our Sunday morning catechism hour. But notice the reversal of the pattern, this decreation of the world that then was. First of all, in Genesis 6-7, the very first thing that's said is that man will be destroyed. Now what was the very last thing in the creation? It was man created. Now we're going backwards. What was next as we go backwards in creation? Well, it was the beasts and the creeping things. They too will be destroyed. That's the next thing that's said in Genesis 6-7. And then the final thing said in Genesis 6-7 is that the birds as well will be destroyed. We're working backward from man, beasts and creeping things to the birds. And then finally in verse 13, the earth and the land will as well be destroyed. The pattern 
of creation being undone, reversed, decreation of the world that then was. But the question remains, why the flood? Why the flood? Well, in chapter 6 and verse 5 of Genesis, we find the reason, and it is that mankind was doing what was evil continually. In fact, it's even more emphatic than that. Only evil continually is the description of the world that then was. And of course, this was put on perfect display as the preacher of righteousness was proclaiming the judgment that was to come and receiving rejection of that gospel word. But, but not all were under the condemnation of the flood. Enter Noah, who was, on the one hand, righteous in the sight of God, and on the other hand, we find the reason for this He is righteously related to God in covenant precisely because he found favor in the sight of God. That word is literally grace. So you see, it's not Noah's works. It's not God looking at him and saying, oh, I I found one that actually does keep the whole law just like Jesus. I'll spare him. No, he was a sinner like the rest, but God had placed his favor upon him. And as a result, he was righteous in the sight of God. And so God rescued him and his whole family. Now, how did God judge the world in its rebellion and at the same time deliver his servants by grace? Well, the answer, of course, is through the flood waters. Judgment, deliverance, same mechanism, the flood waters. Now, God commanded Noah, of course, to make an ark. And you'll know the setup if you've heard this before, but the Hebrew word for ark, normally we don't throw Hebrew words around from the pulpit, but this one's important. It's the little word teva. The little word teva. So keep that in mind, children, that ark means is the Hebrew word teva. You're going to need that in just a minute. So God commands Noah to make the ark, the teva. Why? so that he would be sheltered from the storm of the wrath of God, that he would be delivered as he is encompassed within this saving device of God, the ark, with his family. And so through the floodwaters, God both judges those in rebellion and delivers those upon whom he grants his favor and his grace same judgment flood waters entirely different result and you see here perhaps an early indication of what we asserted originally that baptism as we'll connect the dots of course the flood was described as a baptism in first peter 3 but baptism has this dual side as well It can be for greatest possible blessing. It signifies the glorious benefits of the covenant of grace, the highest possible privileges that we can ever know in the Christian life. And at the same time, because of its connection to the flood waters, it reminds us as well that if we do not believe in the Christ who was given for our sins, then we too will be under the floodwaters, not of blessing, but of judgment. We will not be delivered through the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ if we spurn him and reject him, but we will be left to fend for ourselves in our unrighteousness, 
before the wrath of Almighty God. 1 Peter 3, we've said, explicitly calls the flood a baptism. And the text reads, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you. Now, obviously here, we don't have to get into the exegesis of this. Uh, we're, we're not to understand from 1 Peter 3, baptism saves in the sense that, oh, well, if you just apply the waters of baptism, then you're justified. That is not what Peter is teaching here. He's saying, rather, in the same way the ark saved Noah and his, so now baptism saves you. It is what baptism signifies and seals. It was what the ark pictured for them, which was saving in that sense. Baptism points to the mighty deliverance of God through judgment of his people, but it also points to the dreadful wrath of God that will be poured out upon all who rebel. Now, what about baptism today? Well, the same thing is true in the sacrament of baptism today. Even this morning, as two infants will be baptized, their baptism marks them out as belonging to God and as part of His covenant community. Our prayer, of course, is always that they'll lay hold of the gracious promises of God's covenant to be God to us, as we've read, and to our children, our descendants, our offspring. But beloved, this is sobering. The dreadful reality is that if our covenant children rebel against God, if they refuse to lay hold of His promises to own for themselves the covenant of grace which God has laid before them in Jesus Christ, if they do not embrace Jesus as He's freely offered to them in the gospel, then they will have the greater condemnation having been marked out with the sign of blessing. That sign of blessing will become to those who reject Jesus Christ a sign of the greatest possible curse. There is salvation and there is judgment pictured in the sacrament of baptism. And this causes us to cry out to the Lord, Oh, for grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I am constrained to be. It's not, oh, isn't this wonderful? We apply the sign of baptism to our children and all is well. We presume now that uh, there will never be a day where they did not lay hold of the promises of the gospel. No, we cry out to the Lord for that same grace, that same favor, which ultimately spared Noah from the floodwaters of judgment. We pray that the Lord will grant grace to all of our covenant children, even as he has to us. Now to probe a bit further, because we've said there's two great Old Testament events where we see the floodwaters of God's judgment. We see it in the flood, and we see it, of course, in that greatest of all Old Testament events, the Exodus. So interestingly, the Exodus is a repeating of the same pattern that we saw with the flood. There, of course, it was salvation through the floodwaters via the ark. Well, what's it going to look like here in the Exodus? Salvation through the floodwaters of the Red Sea by walking through on dry ground. Now, what's missing from the picture? What about the floodwaters of judgment? Yeah, all those Egyptians that are lying dead on the seashore, God having enveloped them 
and consume them in his wrath in the midst of the flood waters. Again, mighty deliverance for the people of God, for his covenant people, but judgment upon those who reject his word and promise. Now, further fascinating, and children, I told you that you were going to need to remember that Hebrew word, teva, because the ark is not the only time that that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. Now, where else is it used? It's used in connection with the Exodus and, of course, what happens before it. And so you think of the life of baby Moses. Well, what's significant about the life of baby Moses? Well, probably more significant even than that is the malice and hatred of the Pharaoh of Egypt against God's covenant people. You remember that the Pharaoh had ordered the murder of all of the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile River. Drown them. So as soon as they're born, snap them up, drown them, murder them. Murder God's covenant seed in the Nile River. And of course, what does the Nile River represent at that point? But the very waters of death, you see. Now in the context of this great wickedness, what does Moses' family do for him? Well, they built a basket. And a lot of times, especially in this culture, you know, we immediately think of um, a really nicely decorated basket that you might buy on Pinterest. Uh, that is not what this was. This was a teva. It was an ark. Now, do you think that perhaps the Lord inspired the same Hebrew word here, even though the size of what Moses was floating around in on the Nile River was nothing by comparison to the ark that God commanded Noah to build earlier? Of course it's intentional. We are to see that it is through this vessel, God's provision, that Moses is going to be delivered in the midst of the waters of death and judgment. And so the same pattern emerges here. Moses is sheltered in this ark, even though he's placed squarely in the midst of the waters of death where many before him have gone and died. In God's rich mercy, Moses is not consumed by the floodwaters of death, but delivered through them by the Teva. Then, as Moses rises up as the human deliverer of God's people from Egypt, God brings plagues that culminate with God's people leaving or exiting, exodus, from Egypt. Here again, we encounter the foreboding waters. Now, this time, it's the Red Sea. So we've gone from flood to the Nile to the Red Sea. And now it seems that God's people have been brought out only to die at the hands of Pharaoh's onrushing army. Children, you remember the story. God delivered them through the Passover, that glorious event, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and God's people are delivered from the wrathful hand of Pharaoh only to be cornered, as it were, by Pharaoh's army again, and there's no way out. They're caught dead to rights. And how are they going to fight against horses and chariots and spears when all they've got is, at best, a pitchfork? They're dead. There is no salvation for them in God, if you were to use the words of the wicked in Psalm 3. Well, 
Here we see the waters of the Red Sea hemming them in. The waters, which it seems, will be the mechanism of their demise at the hands of Pharaoh. But, but no. Through no merit of their own, no genius plan, no strength whatsoever, they're summoned by the mighty hand of God to walk in the midst of the sea. And so God, children, remember, draws back the waters. He parts the Red Sea, and there is dry ground upon which they walk. They walk right through the midst of the judgment waters of God, and they are delivered. You see the pattern. And what comes next? Well, of course, the drowning of Pharaoh's armies. Pharaoh's armies rush in after them to devour them as is always the agenda of Satan and his minions. And what happens to them? They are drowned out by the judgment waters of God. God's people delivered through the judgment waters, the wicked consumed in the wrath of God by them. It's the same pattern all over again, salvation and judgment. Now, all this is called the baptism as well. We said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where we read, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, how is that possible? How is this a baptism? Well, they were united, in a sense, to Moses, but God is delivering them even as he is judging their enemies. It's baptism in the sense that it is salvation for them that is wrought through the midst of the waters of judgment. Remember, being with Noah in the ark means deliverance. Being outside means judgment, waters, and death. Here also, being with Moses under the cloud and in the sea means deliverance. Being apart from Moses and out from under the cloud and the separated waters of the sea meant judgment and death through those same waters. Well, we don't have time, although it would be very nice to paint a picture of Jonah in connection with salvation and judgment. I'll leave you to do some homework this afternoon. You can read the book of Jonah, children, in a very short span of time and ask yourself the question, how do I see the same exact pattern that we've observed here that God's people are delivered by His gracious hand through the waters of judgment. And it's a beautiful picture that points us to Christ indeed. Well, secondly, and finally, the New Testament picture that we see of baptism and salvation and judgment. Now we're going to expand the pale just a little bit. We're not going to give as many examples as we did in the Old Testament. We're going to springboard from those Old Testament examples and see what the New Testament does, especially with regard to Christ, in these matters of the floodwaters of God's judgment and the blessing and curse of the covenant sign. So what we want to look at here is specifically in relation to Christ. We want to see here, children, that there's two things about our Lord Jesus Christ that are particularly glorious in this connection. The first is the baptism with which he must be baptized. And the second is the circumcision, Paul calls it, of Christ on the cross. So first of all, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're back in Mark 10 where uh, two of the disciples make uh, rather a mess of things. And uh, 
the result is that they're all pretty much indignant with each other. By the end, uh, Jesus has to bring them back to himself and to the gospel. And this is what he seeks to do. Now, forget for the moment the disciples' very lame response that they can actually participate in these things. And forget even further, if you can, Jesus' response that they actually will participate in these things. There is a sense in which, yes, they can drink the cup and will that they can be baptized with his baptism, and they will. But we are talking here about a once-for-all history of redemption accomplishment by Jesus Christ. He was baptized in a way that no other has ever been or ever will be because his baptism took place at the cross. Think about the cup that he was to drink. Children, we're almost there in the book of Luke, we're getting to Gethsemane very, very soon. And when we get there, we will observe again that cup of wrath into which the Lord Jesus looks. What is he going to do on the cross? You know, some people will say, oh, the terrible suffering of the cross. Beloved, not to minimize the physical aspect of crucifixion, which is gory and awful, but there were others crucified right alongside of him. There have been many before that and many since. That was not the uniqueness of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The uniqueness of his suffering was this, that he looked into the cup of God's wrath and he drank it on the cross down to the last drop. And he did that for his people. Note even in Mark 10, how the two are intimately connected. He says, on the one hand, I have a baptism with which I must be baptized and then what does he say at the end of that section, verse 45? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, how's he going to serve? By giving his life a ransom for many. That's the cross. And you see the explicit connection between the drinking of the cup and the baptism with which Jesus must be baptized and this glorious doctrine of salvation and judgment. Christ, under the floodwaters of God's wrath, subjected himself to such terrors in order that we might pass safely through. Christ is the greater Noah. He is our ark of safety. Christ is the greater Moses. He leads us on a new exodus through his death, burial, resurrection. We see in the text in 1 Peter 3 and in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, we've read before, but we need, in light of these great texts, to praise God that Christ Jesus has borne the judgment, the flood waters of God's wrath as he hung there on the cross, and he did it in place of sinners. There's also a negative aspect, and you would expect this, in the doctrine of baptism. As one author puts it, it's a sign of judgment, as well as salvation. That sounds familiar. 1 Peter 3 says, Noah's ark's a picture of baptism, the judgment waters of God, which Noah and his family escaped. 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of the Red Sea in the same way. The judgment waters which Israel passed through, but the Egyptian army was consumed. And Jesus, looking forward to the cross, said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. There at the cross, 
the judgment of God came down upon our Savior and consumed Him. Baptism speaks of this judgment. Warning that if we do not grasp Christ by faith, we ourselves will be judged with judgment, the very judgment with which Christ was judged under the wrath of God on the cross. Now, where does this all lead us at the end of all things? Well, this doctrine of baptism, this judgment aspect of the floodwaters of baptism ends in what Revelation calls the lake of fire. And so Christ came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so here we see the ultimate end of that promise. He baptizes with the Spirit, but the flip side of that covenantal coin is that He baptizes with fire. And so here we see the lake of fire as Jesus had promised, but also we see the glorious hope of the believer. What else do we find in the book of Revelation? Yes, the lake of fire, the ultimate end of the floodwaters of God's judgment, but even more, we see that there was no sea in the new heavens and the new earth. What does that mean? The sea, that place as we've seen many times now in this particular sermon that is the place of foreboding, the place of judgment, the place of the wrath of God. There was no sea. The wrath of God is done away. The lake of fire is the place of dwelling for all those who do not believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the new heavens and the new earth in the very presence of God, worshiping Him forever and ever and ever, will have a marked absence of the wrath and judgment of God. There will be nothing but the blessing of God. No more sin, no more sighing, no more sorrow, beloved, no more death. What a day that will be. But then finally, there's the second element here, which is the circumcision of Christ. Now, the baptism, maybe we can understand, and we've been talking about the floodwaters of judgment and how Christ was overwhelmed by those floodwaters on the cross. That's his baptism. But what's this talk about the circumcision of Christ? Well, surely he was, as every good little Jewish boy would have been, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul boasts of the very thing in Philippians 3 as his pedigree in Judaism. And yet, this is not when the Scripture talks about the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2. It's not at all what is being said there. Well, what's it refer to? What is circumcision after all? It is to do with cutting, obviously. The cutting away, or in negative terms, the cutting off. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. In Colossians 2, we read that it is in Christ that you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins in the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, what's the Old Testament background for such a statement? The circumcision of Christ. Where does Paul get such an idea? And it is, of course, from the text that we read in Genesis chapter 17, that those who did not have the covenant sign applied to them would be 
cut off from the people of God. It was the identifying mark of the people of God in the Old Covenant. And Paul makes the explicit connection in Colossians 2 that it is in the New Covenant now, not circumcision, but rather baptism that replaces it as the identifying sign of God's covenant. But we see this language of being cut off, or even in Genesis 15, the passing through the pieces. I, I can't go into the details now. You, most of you will remember the context there where uh, God and His faithfulness is the one, not Abraham, who passes through those cut in half pieces. Why? To signify his faithfulness to his promises. May it be done to me. In other words, the rending apart of these animals. May it be done to me if I do not fulfill all that I have pledged to you here in the covenant. In a word, may God be cut off himself if he does not faithfully perform the conditions of his gracious covenant. Now what does circumcision signify? What does it point to? What's it a picture of? Circumcision signifies the greatest spiritual blessings. Even in the Old Covenant, this is what it signified. It was not just a national mark that was placed upon the Israelite people. No, it signified the greatest spiritual blessings. Regeneration, the new heart, the cutting away of sin and the flesh, even justification, as we find in Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It was a sign of the righteousness that comes to us by faith. But it's a circumcision ultimately of the heart. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that God promises these things to His people. But it signifies also the penalty for covenant breakers, that they will be cut off. It points us to Christ. And here's the connection to the cross. The cross is His circumcision, where He is cut off out of the land of the living for his people, or as Paul puts it differently in Galatians chapter 3, Christ became a curse for us. He came under the wrath of God. He was cut off from his Father, from the land of the living, all of it for our salvation. Now back to Colossians 2. The Old Testament picture, of course, of that judgment ordeal, right? The passing through the floodwaters of judgment that sinners deserve, but the Savior has undergone was circumcision. The New Testament picture of this same judgment ordeal that Christ has undergone for those in union with Him is baptism. And beloved, because He took the curse, we get the new heart. The bondage of sin is broken. And we are cleansed from our sins. Baptism doesn't do these things. Baptism signifies these things. Baptism points to these things. So when we apply the waters of baptism to infants, we are not saying they have the new heart. We are not saying the waters regenerate them. We are not saying, as the Roman Catholic Church does, that the water is washing away original sin. All of that is completely devoid of biblical content and ideas. What are we saying? We're saying that we serve a faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has always dealt in families. And because the Lord Jesus Christ 
has been baptized under the wrath of God and has been circumcised and cut off from the land of the living for his people. We have the great hope of the gospel signified and sealed to us in baptism. Children, think about your baptism. You're going to be called upon to do that very thing in just a few minutes. What do you think of when you think of your baptism? What you should think of is the faithfulness of God to his covenant and the work of Jesus Christ in being cut off on Calvary's cross for sinners. His being baptized under the wrath of God for sinners. And so what's the effect of baptism? There's nothing magical that happens when the waters of baptism are applied. But there is something glorious because we're pointed to Christ who was cut off for us, who gave his life a ransom for many in order that we might receive the new heart and believe on him by faith. If you're apart from Christ, again, I plead with you, the judgment waters of God will issue in the lake of fire. And so repent, turn from your sins and believe in the one who was cut off for sinners and who underwent the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And for you believers, rejoice. How can we hear these things and not utterly praise our God? Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for the richness of the sacrament of baptism that you have given, how you have grounded it so thoroughly in the word of God, how you have given us these pictures in actual historical events, in the flood, in the Nile River, in the waters of the Red Sea, in circumcision, and now in baptism. Lord, we thank you for these glorious spiritual realities of the new heart, the washing away of sin, justification, your sanctifying work, union with Christ. How we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us more than anything else, more than any debates that we could have over baptism. Father, give us a heart of utter gratitude for the Christ who was circumcised and baptized on the cross in our place. How we praise you for these things in Jesus' name.